Be sure to tune into Immigration with Tamina Watson this and every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Immigration attorney Tamina Watson founded Watson Immigration Law here in Seattle and is a frequent speaker, author, and blogger who has appeared in Forbes, CNN, The Seattle Times, and much, much more. On her new radio show, Tamina will take all your questions live on air. Plus, she will discuss and provide insight into the latest immigration news and issues, as well as talk with notable personalities who have impacted U.S. immigration laws or our notable immigrants themselves. Check out her new show, Tuesdays at 10 a.m., Immigration with Tamina Watson on Daisy 1250 a.m., radio that listens to you. Good morning, Seattle. This is Tamina Watson on Desi 1250 AM. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Uh, This show is all about immigration, as you may know. Immigration with Tamina is about news updates, uh, immigration law updates, interviews with people who are immigrants making a difference in the community, but also people who are making a difference uh, to immigration rules and regulations and laws, as well as to, to people's lives. If you have any questions or comments, you can call us at 844-301-1250 and you can email me at info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. That's info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. And a reminder that we have a brand new Facebook page uh, about the show. It took 18 months to actually have a page, but we have one. And, you know, it's uh, called Immigration with Tamina Radio Show. Please join the, the page so you can get updated information about what is going on with the show and get all the content of the past shows in one spot. Um, You know, it's been a very trying week and weekend. If you have been listening to the news, you cannot have missed what has happened. There were three executive orders and the very last one uh, has created chaos, not only in the US, but all around the world. Um, And we're going to talk about about that in just a moment. But if you have been affected by it, please email me at info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. If you have family or friends who are affected, Call me, email me at info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com and my law firm website is watsonimmigrationlaw.com. I know that people are struggling to know what the answers are to things and I'd be able to connect you if I can't help you myself. Um, <clears throat> the other thing to remember is H-1B season is approaching fast and while there is an executive order uh, on people uh, from seven countries, it doesn't mean that we cannot file H-1Bs for them. So if you have questions about that particular issue you're welcome to contact me and then did you go to the rally this weekend in Seattle you know if you did let me know uh, email me at info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com the rally made me really proud we had almost what 10,000 people there I really don't know how many heads were there but it was an incredible incre- scene of solidarity and all our congressional delegation had come out to speak the uh, rally was organized by uh, the uh, American uh, Refugee Center in Seattle uh, I believe I may have gotten that name wrong but the, the organizer's name is Annie Khan. Annie, a big, big thank you to you for all that you have done uh, for the community over the years, but particularly for standing up for immigrant and refugee rights right when everybody needs it. And the rally was just incredible. And, you know, I was very, very honored. I had the opportunity to speak and it was a very well-received speech and I was just humbled and privileged to be there. 
If you've just tuned in, this is Immigration with Tamina on Desi 1250 AM. Thank you so much for joining us. We have an incredible guest lined up to speak with us today. And before I uh, speak with her, I want to introduce you to her uh, first. Today's guest is an incredibly notable person making a huge impact on immigration. She has made significant differences to immigration policies in the U.S. as well as to immigrant lives. Her name is Manar Wahid. Manar Wahid is the former Deputy Policy Director for Immigration at the White House Domestic Policy Council. She assisted with the development of President Obama's strategy for building a 21st century immigration system. Prior to the White House, Manar engaged in policy work around immigration, profiling, hate violence and gender equity as the Policy Director at South Asian Americans Leading Together. Previously, she worked with Legal Services of New York, where she provided direct services to domestic violence survivors who were primarily from immigrant communities. From 2009 to 2012, she served on the board of the Muslim Bar Association of New York, and Manar received her JD from Brooklyn Law School in June of 2004 and her BA from Wesley College in 1999. Manar, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. It's such an honor and privilege, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you've given us some time today of all days. You have done some incredible work over the years and I could actually speak to you for days but we only have about 18 to 20 minutes so I want to make sure I get through all the questions. I'm going to dive into it. A lot has transpired in the last week. Can you give us a quick summary of the actions that have taken place uh, over the weekend with regard to immigration? Sure. Um, I will do this as quickly as I can. Um, A lot has happened just in the, you know, we can change since the new president has come into office. I'll start with the order that came out on Friday and then just give a very brief overview of some of the other things already in play. So as many people know, there is there was an order issued Friday around 5 o'clock, an executive order by the president that is um, basically an anti-Muslim and anti-refugee order. Um, it prohibits people from seven countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, from entering the United States for 90 days. Um, That also, you know, that includes people who have visas. Initially, it included people that have green cards. That's now apparently been corrected. Um, But based on this order, we don't know what happens after the 90 days. There are a few um, mechanisms in place reporting to the president whether or not these countries are providing sufficient information to to have people come in from them. But the reality is we don't know when people from these countries will be able to enter again, and additionally, countries can be added at any time. The order also um, suspends our refugee program, so it won't allow any refugees into the country for the next 120 days. And when they, it can resume in 120 days, we don't know if it will include all the countries. We don't know kind of what the, the premise or the parameters of the program will be moving forward. Um, It also suspends the entrance of Syrian refugees indefinitely, which is obviously all of these things are not only discriminatory, but also just contrary to our principles and values as a nation to be letting uh, the term refugees exist for a reason. It's to provide people refuge who are seeing other countries based on persecution. And so this is, you know, very, very contrary to all of that. Additionally, with regard to the refugee piece, it is to allow in with priority people who are religious minorities, which basically has the effect of 
allowing in Christians from Muslim-majority countries. So that's kind of that that order, and we've seen the impact of it all weekend. Um, the other two orders that were issued last week, just very quickly, are around border security and interior enforcement. Basically what they do is they create um, many more people in ICE and CBP. They allow for 10,000 more people in ICE and um, 5,000 more in CBP and Customs and Border Patrol. And they change the priorities for enforcement. So the priorities will now include not just conviction, not just particular convictions, which were there before, but convictions broadly, charges, so before anybody is convicted, and it also say acts that could constitute charges. So these could be, these would be people who entered without papers, they could be people who are visa overstays, people who are working without authorization or using social security numbers that aren't their own. The breadth of this is, remains to be seen is very large. Um, in conjunction with that, it reinstitutes a program called Secure Communities, which was incredibly problematic when it was in place before, which is why um, the Obama administration actually got rid of it and created a different program. But it deputizes state and local law enforcement, the order, um, to essentially enforce immigration law. Um, and what the impact of secure communities can be is that, you know, local law enforcement who may engage in profiling could be picking people up and then those people would end up in immigration enforcement. Um, it also creates, um, it threatens to take funding away from sanctuary cities. It's not clear what that funding will be, but, you know, the impact of all of these together is really, really detrimental on our communities because what it means is we are targeting particular communities and then we are also, they are also holding local cities and jurisdictions accountable when they're not participating in that by trying to withdraw their federal funding. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are the other pieces that we saw in the um, in orders around in the news around like building a wall, um, detaining all people until their until their cases are resolved, like so people who are crossing the border. So just kind of thinking about these in conjunction and the way that it is really pushing immigrant communities and communities of color into the corners and crevices of our society by not allowing them to example people will have to worry when they report hate crimes um, because they will have to worry about local law enforcement charged with protecting them actually enforcing immigration law instead. So this the com combined impact of these is very, very detrimental. I, you know, I totally agree. And I think the devastation is only just unfolding. And I, I think there's so much to be seen on how it will continue to unfold. Where did the, the list of the seven countries come from? So the list of the seven countries is... Uh, unfortunately comes from a the way it seems to have been done is that it comes from an act that was passed in 2015 by congress and then signed by president obama um basically we have a program in our immigration system that has existed for quite some time called the visa waiver program and that program allows nationals of certain countries to travel to the u.s without a visa right so there are approximately 38 countries in this program um they are chosen based on specific criteria around their security, around the fact that like their um, their people who are granted visa historically comply with immigration law, meaning that they don't overstay their visas. Um, there's a variety of factors in the original in the original program. Um, and so this law that was passed in 2015 basically says nationals of those 38 countries who travel to the seven countries that are now listed as a part of the the new executive order, or who are dual nationals of Iran, Iraq, Sudan, or Syria cannot use the visa waiver program unless they are granted a waiver. So there is a way for them to still do it, but they have to be given a waiver. 
Um, but I think what the really crucial difference is here is that those individuals who can't come in through the visa waiver program, they can still apply for a visa through our regular program. This is a program that is based on the security of countries that has 38 countries listed in it. But then these these seven countries have been ones that are, you know, based on whatever historically has happened, they have to go through the regular process um, if people have that, that do, have traveled to them. So it doesn't ban people. It never bans people from coming in. It just said that they had to go through the regular visa process as compared to this new executive order that is essentially holding people in detention, deporting them. CBP officers are forcing people to, to sign different removal of voluntary departure papers or not allowing them to board planes to the U.S. at all. That's a completely different ballgame. It, it is. It's, a, it's a, um, unprecedented, actually. Um, you have worked tirelessly on regulations uh, over the years. Tell us the process and the challenges that you faced. Sure. So, I mean, the regulatory process is, is very complicated. It's not like a, it's not like an easy process. It goes through historically a lengthy process with the agencies writing the regulations, with a clearance process with all the federal agencies. It's very, very deliberate um, and is based on a lot of research and analysis. That's the way it's been historically. And when there, you know, when new regulations are created, they really go through a process that's called notice and comment. Um, and actually, if you looked at there's three additional memos, um, executive potential executive orders, drafts of which have been leaked. And if you look at a couple of these, you'll see that throughout them, they say notice and comment. And what that means is a regulation has to be drafted, which is generally a pretty intense process for the agencies. And then it gets posted for public review. People, advocacy organizations, businesses can all comment on it. And then when a final regulation is issued, it really has to respond to all of those comments to say this is this is what people said. This is why we didn't do it. And the public comments are also, I mean, the comments are also publicly available. So I think the real question here, as new regulations are created, old regulations might be dismantled, is, is this current administration going to follow that protocol? Because what we've seen in the last 10 days is that they're not following necessarily what our fundamental laws are as a country. So we don't know how this is going to play out. But I do think that as if regulations are posted for notice and comment, as some of the leaked memos seem to indicate they will be, it's going to require a lot of participation and mobilization by communities to really like push back on them as well if they're problematic. So the regulations that exist currently, they they will exist until new regulation is finalized, not just posted for notice and comment. Is that correct? That should be correct. Um, there are exceptions to the entire notice and comment period. Um, so there are ways to there are way, there are situations in which it things don't have to go through a notice and comment period, and some of those could be around dismantling as well. Um, it's really going to be dependent on each individual um, action that this new administration is taking, and it's going to be on us as lawyers, as advocates, as community members to make sure that they are doing it the right way, because what we've seen is that we can't trust that will be true. You know, you uh, you were there at the White House when Nasir's was dismantled. Um, why was that important um, and what for advocates and community members? So NSEERS was a, a regulation that was created, a program that was created um, shortly after 9-11 during the Bush administration that required people, um, so it had, a, it had two layers, one of which was what requiring people to register in the U.S. So this, dismantling this framework, the, the Obama administration had stopped using this quite some years ago. Countries were delisted, people were not registering. Um, but the, the 
the importance of dismantling it really goes back to the fact that it's it's not something that could be used in the future, but it serves no, like, it's ineffective, it serves no pur- purpose. And at the time, you know, when it was dismantled in d- just a few months ago, it had served no purpose in many years. So this was a, a regulation that um, that the Department of Homeland Security was able to dismantle immediately because it wasn't, it hadn't been used in years and wasn't providing any benefit. Got it. Well, I thank you so much for doing that because, you know, the community cheered when when this was done. And we know that you were a, a significant person in all of that that happened. You know, the nation is really in crisis, constitutional crisis, rule of law seems to be, you know, questionably used. What can the nation do at this time? Yeah, so, I mean, this is a time when people are, like, very engaged, very committed. I mean, the protests that we've seen around the country, I'm really impressed that they, you know, that they are not, they have not stopped. And, it, you know, in some ways it feels like it's already been a lifetime since mm-hmm. January 20th. Um, it does. But, you know, at the same time, it does. But at the same time, you know, 10 days and 10 days, quite frankly, of protests in a lot around the country and the way that we saw people lawyers and community members mobilized to airports over the weekend to help protect people's rights was really quite incredible. So I think it's a great question figuring out how do we use that energy. Um, The protests are really important as one piece of it, but what are the other pieces, right? Mm -hmm. So I think one of them, you know, that I think is people say all the time, but I feel like people don't use enough is really like reaching out to engaging your member of Congress. Whether it's in the House, whether it's in the Senate, um, we are relying on them to uphold the law, whether we're talking about confirming um, any of Trump's nominees that are problematic or we're talking about doing something about these executive orders, protecting our civil rights. So just yesterday, um, Senator Feinstein introduced a piece of legislation to basically rescind the executive order from Friday, the anti-Muslim and anti-refugee order. But unfortunately, um, the GOP blocked that from going to vote yesterday. So I think, you know, really reaching out to your members of Congress um, to to push them, like they actually pay attention to that. They log those calls. They log the emails. They care about what their constituents are saying. Um, I think another piece of it, you know, and that I would say on the member of Congress piece as well, that goes back, we saw just incredibly shocking things happen in the news last night with the appointment of a new acting AG um, And we are currently going through hearings for the Trump nominee for attorney general. And so the importance of opposing that um, that nominee when they are, you know, have historically voted against things that protect um, immigrant domestic violence survivors, um, have, you know, opposed like so many different pieces of our fundamental rights. It's, It's important for us to be vigilant about what's happening, even when we're in different places around the country. Similarly, I think people, you know, people can engage their state and local officials. Um, We have, you know, tons of mayors, um, educational institutions, faith-based institutions that have come out and said they're going to be sanctuary for immigrants and communities of color and they're going to be safe havens. So I think, you know, as we see things like the executive order that threatens their funding, it's important for us to let them know that we support them and that we want them to keep doing this. Um, And, you know, being a sanctuary institution is not just about calling yourself one. Um, It's about actually holding the policies in place that will protect people, whether it's not turning people over to immigration enforcement or local law enforcement if they begin enforcing immigration law or creating a safe space for people to really um, 
talk about what they're experiencing both in their immigration case, but also, you know, we are seeing a lot of people so emotionally impacted by this and feeling really hopeless and depressed and we need to put them we need to put them in touch with the right professionals to kind of work through this. This is unfurthered territory. Um, other ways I will just highlight very quickly, I think sharing stories is incredibly important. It doesn't always seem as important, but it is how how we have been able in the past to move towards policy change, whether you think about the Dreamers and the creation of DACA and the way that they went to state and local officials, but also just shared their stories around the country. It is a really challenging thing for people to do, and it takes a lot of courage, but it does move people. Um, I also think the stories we saw over the weekend with people stuck in airports were incredibly not just powerful for the mainstream public to see, but also allowed different attorneys to get in and um, communicate with CVP and try to get people released instead of detained or deported. Um, those types of protests also, you know, they, they protest outside the airport. They hold, they hold people accountable to make sure that all the people are released, and they also draw the attention of the press outlets and social media in a way that I think is incredibly powerful and also necessary for people to be aware of what's happening. Well, you've given us a lot of um, guidance, and this is incredible. Um, so how did you end up at the White House, and what's next for you? We have a couple of minutes for you to answer that question, if you can. <laughs> Those things, it's funny because they feel quite um, quite straight in everything that's currently happening, but um, I was... You know, I have been a lawyer for about 12 years now. Um, I spent time representing domestic violence survivors in court um, and then spent time doing national policy work for South Asian communities around immigration, profiling, hate crimes, a range of, a range of issues. And I really had the, the good fortune of having people recommend me for a position at the White House when one of them opened up. It was a, it was a different time, and I think the Obama administration was one that really looked for advocates within the community who understood the issues, were connected to the community, and could bring that voice into government. Um, so I think times seem to have shifted in, on that front. Um, Feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> it does feel like a lifetime ago. Um, so I am still figuring out what my next step is. You know, with everything going on, it's it's hard to keep up and to, to look at the next step, but I'm just figuring out um, you know, under a different administration, I think I would have had different plans as to where to go next. But this seems like a moment where um, I want to be a voice as much as I can for Muslim, Arab, South Asian communities um, as we engage in a federal world that we, you know, as much as, you know, we knew three months ago, we're not fully prepared for, I think. Well, I don't think we were prepared for it even last week, even though we knew uh, a shift was coming. You know, Manar, you are a wealth of information and you have so much experience and insights to offer that I would love to have you back on the show sometime in the near future so you can give us some more guidance. But whatever, you know, I can do or, you know, please reach out. And, you know, if you have ideas, please share them. And you mentioned 
Russian sanctuary city. I'm so proud that our city was the first one to stand up. Our mayor, Murray, and the Office of Immigrant and Refugee Affairs stood up and basically said, we will remain a sanctuary city. And, you know, other cities have followed since, but we are really late leading uh, in the country. And also, you may not have... May, may, may not have seen yesterday our Attorney General was the first one to file a suit against the new executive orders. That was exactly what I was going to point out. You guys are incredible leaders. We've seen so many lawsuits around the country, but this is the first This is the first one by a state and with the support of some corporate businesses as well, which I think is very important. That's right. Well, you know, I have about 30 seconds to ask you any, any final words for our listeners. Just to stay vigilant, stay engaged, and, you know, not to lose hope. We're going we're gonna to fight to make sure that our laws are upheld. Not to lose hope. Well, you know, those are wonderful words to end this with. Thank you so much, Manar, for being here today, for actually uh, guiding us on a lot of things that are happening and sharing your experience. Uh, Right now, we have so much fear and anxiety, and quite rightly so. They're all warranted at this point. And your being on the show today was just incredible. So thank you so very much for being here. Take care. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners, that was Manar Wahid. It was just an incredible voice to have at a time that we couldn't have had a stronger voice on the show. If you have questions and comments, uh, any stories to share, uh, anything at all, email me at info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. That's info at watsonimmigrationlaw.com. And you can contact the station at contact at desi1250am.com. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I'll see you next week, Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Bye-bye.